Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Our focus this week is the Middle East and the crisis unfolding since a US drone strike last Friday in Baghdad killed the Iranian military commander Qasem Soleimani, widely regarded as the second most powerful man in Iran behind the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. It may be some time before the consequences of this strike, ordered by US President Donald Trump, become clear. Later, I'll be getting the latest on the story from our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. But I'm joined now on the line, also from Washington, by Thomas Wright, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a frequent guest here on Worldview. Tom, thanks for taking the time to join us again. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be uh, with you. Tom, we know that Soleimani had been in the US's sights for a long time. And, um, but, but one of the immediate questions that arose when news broke of this drone strike on Friday was, why now? Why this action at this time? Why do you think the Trump administration chose this moment to carry out this assassination? Well, you're exactly right. I mean, Soleimani has been, as you say, the second most important person in Iran, but one of the most important figures in the Middle East, particularly militarily um, from the days of the Iraq war in organizing Iranian proxies against uh, U.S. forces to uh, expanding Iran's influence in the region. So he was, to some extent, sort of the, you know, public enemy number one in America when it comes to, you know, tangling with the Iranian military. But President Bush during the Iraq war and President Obama both refrained from going after him um, directly because of the concerns about um, escalation and what it would what it would mean. And so, you know, this is something that Trump has has done. I think there's a, a number of different, you know, explanations. We're not completely sure which it is, but I have my own sort of theory. And one is uh, that was reported by the New York Times that the Pentagon, uh, you know, put it out there as sort of a throwaway option uh, to try to make other options sound more reasonable. And that's a dangerous thing to do with Trump. And he went uh, for that option immediately because it's dramatic and it's sort of focused on an individual uh, and it sort of makes sense to him. And then he said he, he endorsed it after the protests outside the embassy. Um, so that's sort of one explanation. It's really just about Trump. There was a second report from the Washington Post that said that Pompeo and Esper for some time had wanted to do it and that they were trying to push Trump in that direction. That sounds to me a little bit like after the fact rationalization that they're t- trying to take credit for it. Um, the Times sources seem pretty and robust. And then the third explanation is the administration's one, which is that there was an imminent attack they really had no evidence that they were able to present on that publicly. And the people who've been briefed on the classified version have said it's extremely thin. And again, oh, government officials have told uh, media outlets that it's razor thin. Um, so I, I think we can sort of dismiss that one as the least likely um, of the explanations. My own sort of theory behind it is that Trump you know, doesn't really care when Iran attacks Saudi facilities. He doesn't really care when there's geopolitical maneuverings in the region. And um, But if it's anything that sort of questions his personal strength and, and by proxy sort of U.S. embassies or American warships um, or the like, he takes that very personally. And that sort of triggers, you know, this visceral reaction. So I think it was really uh, his and, and maybe also we could mention you know, that in 1979 with the Iran hostage crisis, that was one of his earliest experiences of foreign policy. And the earliest known statement he made about American foreign policy was in 1980 about the Iran hostage crisis. So one could imagine if one puts uh, a Trumpology hat on to try to 
sort of understand what's going on in his mind, that there was a lot psychologically happening and that then led him to say, OK, let's uh, do this, uh, do this sort of dramatic action um, after the embassy protests. Now, it seems inconceivable that an, att- an attack of this nature, a strike right at the heart of the Iranian regime, will go unanswered. What kind of options are open to the Iranians, you think, in terms of response? Um, well, I think the first thing to say is that no one knows. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, good analysis on both sides of this. I mean, my own view is that they will respond, and I think they will respond in a pretty dramatic way. I, I don't think there will be sort of an all-out regional war um, for a variety of reasons. Mainly, Iran, I think, does not want that. But I think we will see, you know, possibly high-level you know, uh, assassinations of U.S. military personnel, attack potentially on U.S. troops, attacks on U.S. allies. Um, it's notable the Saudis are very, very anxious about this and have come to, have made it clear to Washington they want to see de-escalation. So, you know, Mohammed bin Salman has been very hawkish on Iran, but only to a point because Saudi Arabia is in a much weaker position um, than Iran and they're worried that Trump doesn't care um, enough about them. So I think they have a number you know, of options. But there's another school of thought which says, you know, that actually, um, you know, that they will try to avoid um, confrontation mainly because um, the regime is quite fragile at the moment and that they will respond at a future point in maybe an indirect way um, uh, because they they want to sort of get past this um, moment of fragility. I think it's it's very, very hard to to know for sure but do you think they might bide their time, Tom? We may have to wait for that response. Um, yeah, well, the past practice um, of the regime is often to respond more in the medium to long term. So I, I don't think, you know, it's possible they could respond next week. But if they did not, it would not be surprising. So, you know, you could see, you know, a, 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 a Hezbollah attack, you know, later on this year or even next year. Um that's what the that's what the people who sort of study this very closely say is that there's not we shouldn't necessarily expect an immediate an immediate response. But you know, one doesn't really know what the internal debates are like because Soleimani's death leaves a pretty major vacuum. You know, uh, it, it doesn't mean that Iran has been decapitated because he built these uh, forces that uh, you know that are are autonomous and capable and, and can and act. So I don't think it's diminished. The threat. I think. I think uh, Trump is, is you know, is, is not being uh, 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 fully accurate when he says that. I mean, clearly, Soleimani was a bad guy, and that he's that he's gone is, um, uh, you know, many many Americans will welcome that. But the Iranian forces, I think, are still um, at that level are still quite strong. But what what it, his death does mean is that there's a political vacuum. You know, if you think about someone like this, who basically is you know, a leader, an effective leader of Iran in many um, respects, exerts control over all of these different factions, you know, presumably um, is at the heart of a lot of um, uh, sort of economic webs that keep all of these different um, factions functioning. And just him, him being gone means that there will be a power vacuum and we don't know how that will play out um, over time. It's too optimistic, I think, of Pompeo and others to say that it could go in a good direction, it could very well go in more of a Game of Thrones-esque bad direction. Um, but we, you know, but it's, it's, it is, I think, something that we, we will see um, the after effects of his, of, of the vacuum that he has left.
And based on the evidence you've seen, Tom, since the killing on Friday, do you think the White House has a strategy for dealing with all of these potential responses from Iran? Or, or does it look a bit like they're doing things on the hoof? No, absolutely not. I mean, I think, firstly, I mean, my own view is that it was a strategic mistake. You know, I think that there will be, um, uh, I mean, it's very hard to argue that, that he, you know, that he was just a normal person, right, who, should, who, who was out of bounds. I mean, this was somebody who was over many years executing attacks on U.S. forces, right? So the question is not really whether or not it was legitimate for the U.S. to be thinking about going after him, right? Clearly, if he was in the middle, you know, of an attack or if there was a feeling that, you know, that, that he was very, you know, there was a, a, a really great threat that made it worth it. I mean, that will be that will be one thing, right? So I think we can sort of set that aside in terms of whether he's a good or bad person. But I think it is a strategic mistake because it runs the risk of further uh, escalation in conflict throughout the region that will drag the United States in. I think it, it jeopardizes the fight against ISIS. Well, we already saw this play out yesterday. It means that Iran could go after uh, U.S. allies in the region um, uh, uh, like they did with Saudi Arabia previously, um, and, and maybe even uh, Israel. And the administration has no plan for any of that, right? They haven't, they they only began to really think about this, it seems, a couple of days before. So it's really sort of unprecedented that something of this scale, um, something that could be so potentially destabilizing, um, that they would just execute it um, you know, within sort of 48 hours and then just hope things turn out okay. So I, I think they really don't have a plan. It's also a very weak team. You know, the, the Secretary of Defense is one of the least experienced Secretaries of Defense in many um, years. There's been lots of small mistakes um, under his tenure, including this letter, this draft letter that was released yesterday calling for the withdrawal of troops that they had to withdraw immediately after it was released. Um, you know, Mike Pompeo is highly political, um, is dogged by scandal, um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and really, I think, has struggled um, in the role overall. Robert O'Brien, the national security advisor, uh, really has very little experience and seems to have no real sort of opinions other than to facilitate Trump. So I think it is um, it is a situation where there's really no... No, no process, no real uh, uh, strategic thinking behind it. And they're just indulging the president's whims as he um, has them, which is why this happened. I don't think this would have happened if Jim Mattis was secretary of defense. You know, and I don't think it would have happened if another person uh, had been president, even someone who is hawkish on Iran. And in the same vein, Tom, the, the strike took out not only Suleiman, Suleimani, but also Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, a top commander in Iraq's popular mobilization units. And this drew an angry response from Iraq. And we've had the Iraqi parliament and uh, acting prime minister calling for the removal of all foreign troops from Iraq and an angry response in turn to that from Trump threatening sanctions and so on. Um, what do you think the implications of the strike are for the U.S.'s position in the Middle East generally? I mean, has it been potentially weakened by this or, or is it too early yeah. to say? I mean, it's, I think it's a bit complicated, right? Because at first glance, one might say, look, you know, um, some of the Iranian militia leaders in, in Iraq have been taken out. And that means that, you know, maybe the U.S. is in a stronger position, right? That That's probably what the administration thinks, you know, in a saying. But actually, there's, I think it, it's much more problematic than that. Because if you remember back to when um, ISIS rose in the first place, 
it was as a response to uh, Shia militia um, that were sort of out of control in northern Iraq, right, carrying out atrocities uh, against Sunnis in, in, in northern Iraq. And they turned to ISIS for protection, and that led to you know, ISIS gaining a foothold in that region. The Iranians, while a, a, a generally a pretty nefarious influence in, in Iraq, um, did um, and Soleimani played played a role basically in in controlling some of those Shia militias, and you know they directed them obviously for their own purposes, and um, but they they were uh, helpful in basically combating the rise of ISIS. So a concern now is that you know we could see a return to those days of of Shia militias in northern Iraq, you, you know pushing against uh, Sunni civilians and creating an opening for the return of ISIS uh, at a time when, uh, you know, Western troops are, are are being asked to leave Iraq. So I think that is um, something that, you know, we that I think is probably most concerning to some of the, the military establishment here is that they worry that having just defeated ISIS in a very difficult and protracted um, fight over several years, um, that the Trump administration may be uh, creating the conditions for them to return in pretty short order, um, and 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 they don't seem to have really thought that um, part through um, at all. And that just gets to our, you know, to the point that you know there wasn't really any due diligence. It was more uh, on this. It seems like it was, you know, Iran is organizing these protests outside the U.S. embassy. They're doing all these things. They think you're never going to respond. So let's do something dramatic. And here's you know, a bad guy who's been an enemy of the U.S. for some time, so let's go after him. And then the next day, all of these other um, things sort of come into view and they basically just try to try to brush past them. And is it is it correct to say, Tom, that any weakening of the U.S. position in Iraq, it not only perhaps opens the door for a reemergence of ISIS, as you outlined there, but it also creates a vacuum for Iran to increase its hold on Iraq? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, Iran... W- I mean that that I think was a uh, that was a consequence of the Iraq War, you know, which did create an opening for Iran. And there is a, you know, there is the debate here about how engaged the U.S. should be, you know, in the Middle East. I mean, I think the U.S. is too engaged in the Middle East and and overcommitted in a way. And that as we see the rise of China and all of the important strategic issues in Asia and in Europe, you know, that it's important to try to limit. America's engagement in that part of the world. So that's a, you know, that's a debate I think people are having um, and one could come down to either side of that. But I think what everyone agrees on is the ISIS part, you know, is that the one thing that would actually drag the United States back in in a big way is if uh, we saw a reemergence of of the ISIS sort of mini state, you know, in northern Iraq and Syria and, uh, and then conducting terrorist attacks in Europe and the United States and elsewhere from that um, base. So that's the one sort of really, you know, worst case scenario. I think the Iran, the Iranian influence in Iraq, that's something that's sort of playing out now. But it is worth noting that um, in the last few months, there was very significant protests in Iraq against Iran. Even among Shia Iraqis. Yeah, yeah. it turns out the Iraqis did not want to be, you know, with Iraqi nationalism dominated by um, the Iranians. What the Trump administration has done is basically to 
pull the rug from underneath those protesters and 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 empower sort of the Iranians, you know. So um, by by doing this, by by initially the strikes of a couple of weeks ago, without uh, the approval of the Iraqi government, and now the um, you know this uh, killing that the Iraqi government reacted very angrily to, um, all of this sort of undermines, I think, the political position of the U.S. and Iraq, and takes the focus off Iran. So at precisely the moment where um, the Iraqi people were, you know, concerned about the the Iranians. Um, Trump acted in a way to undermine uh, them and to, I think, strengthen um, the Iranian position politically. Tom, great to get your views as always. Thanks for coming on. Thanks again to Tom Wright of the Brookings Institution in Washington. And we're staying with that story now. And I'm joined by our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne, since the drone strike that took out Qasem Soleimani last Friday, developments have been coming thick and fast. We had a vote by the Iraqi parliament calling on all foreign troops to get out of the country. An angry response from Donald Trump threatening Iraq with sanctions, the like of which it has never seen before. And then on Monday night, the emergence of a letter from the US military indicating that it does intend to withdraw US forces. And that, of course, was swiftly denied by the Pentagon, which said the letter was a draft and it shouldn't have been sent. Can you bring us up to speed on, on this that letter and the confusion surrounding it and where things stand there now? Yeah, that was an extraordinary twist in the story uh, late on Monday here. Um, Reuters and various news agencies from Iraq reported the existence of a letter that had been signed or had been written by uh, Brigadier General William Seely III, he's a senior uh, US commander in Iraq, uh, essentially suggesting to the Iraqi government with address to the Ministry of Defence um, that as requested, it said, by the Iraqi parliament and the, and the prime minister, the US would be re- repositioning its forces as, as it prepares to move onwards. Um, now, first, there was a lot of um, speculation about the accuracy of the letter. It was spotted that the letter was not signed. Um, but within a half an hour or so at the Pentagon, the uh, Defence Secretary, Mark Esper, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, had come out publicly and said, you know, this is not the case, that uh, Esper said there has been no decision made to leave Iraq. Essentially, what this letter seemed to be suggesting that, you know, for the first time in nearly 17 years since the Iraq invasion in 2003, America was now withdrawing from Iraq. They have come out and said, no, this is not the case. Uh, Mark Milley came back out to the reporters and said that the letter was in fact a draft. It was a mistake. It should not have been released. But I think it has added to the sense of confusion and the unease about what next for the US in the Middle East and particularly in Iraq. Um, the Iraqi government did vote. In the, they had an emergency session in Parliament on Sunday and they did vote to expel all foreign troops. And there had already been a debate about this in Iraq before the killing of Soleimani. Um, now, the prime minister was behind it, which is very significant. But, it, you know, it, it does need to be said that about half, a very significant number of members of parliament weren't present, the Sunni members, the Kurdish members. Uh, so I think Iraq is kind of split on this. And they still have not signed on the dotted line, if you like. This law, this resolution has not passed as such yet. But this letter seems to be preempting that, saying, you know, further to your request. We want to honour your request for us to leave. We're leaving. But as I say, the Pentagon said that's not the case. It was a mistake. And there are no imminent plans for the U.S. to pull out of Iraq. There's a lot of concern internationally about the the potential consequences of this action by the U.S. What about domestically? How has this action by Trump gone down among the political establishment in Washington? Well, 
like everything in Washington these days, it's been quite bipartisan. And within hours of the strike, most Republicans, virtually all Republicans, had applauded Donald Trump for his decisive action. Uh, and most Democrats, you know, were carefully um, calibrated their statement to say, you know, nobody is mourning Soleimani, but we need a strategy. And I think there's two arguments from Democrats. Number one, is there a long term strategy, strategy here to follow up on this very provocative move? And second of all, which I think is where the story is kind of going now in the next few days, is what was the specific threat that Trump and Pompeo keep mentioning? You know, was it some very, very significant imminent threat to American troops that prompted this decision? Or as somebody put it here, was it another typical Monday in the Middle East, that there are always these kind of low level threats? Um, so I think Democrats, obviously, there's a, there's a confidentiality issue here. Uh, Democrats know uh, that, you know, publicly available not, information will not be given by the administration. But in times gone past, the, the White House would brief senior members of Congress, uh, the so-called Gang of Eight, they're the most senior figures in Congress about security issues of this kind uh, in a classified setting. So it doesn't seem yet that Democrats and senior Democrats who would be, you know, very experienced in this field, have got enough of a reassurance yet that this was justified whether the public will ever hear about the intelligence that led to this decision remains to be seen. But it's fair to say that the scepticism on the Democratic side about how big this threat really was that prompted this kind of action. It is an election year, of course, in, in the US. Is Trump kind of counting on the fact that presidents tend to get a bounce from being seen to act decisively in, a, in the military mm. field? Or on the other hand, do Democrats kind of see you know potential here to exploit obvious yeah. weaknesses in the White House's approach to foreign policy? It's true. I mean, Donald Trump will probably get a boost from this. Uh, past experience suggests that presidents always get a short-term boost uh, from military action of this kind. Uh, but that very rarely lasts. That can lead to the public, you know, turning against the president in some way as the situation unfolds. And of course, it all depends how this pans out. If there, if there is a very restrained response from Iran, he probably will be applauded. This is the big gamble he has taken. If this thing escalates, then I think Donald Trump could really live to regret this in terms of his political support. On the Democratic side, I think it is having an effect already. Uh, most of the Democrat frontrunners are in Iowa. We're just a few weeks out now from the Democratic, the first Iowa, first caucus in the nation where they're going to pick the Democratic candidate. It is definitely going to be a positive development for Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden, as a former vice president, this was always going to be something he could bring to the table, his foreign policy experience. Um, and already we see him on the campaign trail really, you know, bringing this up now, saying, you know, you need somebody who's got experience, who knows what the responsibilities, the goals would be in a commander in chief, etc. Pete Buttigieg, who is an Afghanistan war veteran also. Uh, but it also works the other way. Bernie Sanders, I think, has been in a way reinvigorated by this. He has, again, he's very opposed to this. And um, he was always kind of a, a pacifist figure here. And this really resonates with his base. They like that about Bernie Sanders. And again, he has brought this message now back. This has been another um, talking point for him on the campaign trail in the last few days. And he's been highlighting the fact that he voted against the Iraq war. Um, again, this is going down very well with his supporters and pointing out that Joe Biden did vote for the Iraq war. So, you know, it can, it can work both ways. And I suppose, as you mentioned, Suzanne, ultimately, uh, whether Trump benefits or otherwise or loses out in terms of his electoral you know, prospects will depend on the the effectiveness of the Iranian response. Is the White House gambling here on 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 the idea that the Iranian regime is, is too weak maybe to, to mount an effective response? They've been weakened by sanctions and protests internally and all of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the the hope and the calculation. But 
uh, there are worrying signs. Um, I think most notably in September when the Saudi, which was a huge strike, the Saudi oil facilities were hit and the Americans have blamed Iran for that. There was quite a, a surprise here at the at the power of those strikes, the accuracy of those strikes. And they suggested that Iran had developed vastly improved missiles to take out that key bit of, of Saudi infrastructure. Um, so that suggested, uh, you know, more power than one would have thought. Um, you know, Trump didn't do this really out of the blue. Since Democrats lost the White House, the Iran nuclear deal, I think, was always a controversial deal here for a lot of, Amer- of Americans. Most Republicans were opposed to it. That it was signed in 2015 by Obama and, and the other powers, including European powers. But also some Democrats voted against it, too. Uh, so I think once you know Donald Trump pulled out of that nuclear deal, the whole thing began to unravel. And um, over the last summer, we saw very significant escalation, the tit for tat with vessels being seized, the shooting down of an unmanned U.S. drone by Iran. So in one sense, you know, this was not always going to happen. Maybe Trump obviously chose the most provocative option. But in a sense, I think this has been building for some time. Uh, So there has been some level of preparedness among maybe not the American public, but, but definitely members of Congress here in Washington. And it's probably worth mentioning, Suzanne, you you were a Europe correspondent when that deal was signed mm. in, in 2015. And, you know, since um, the, the change, since the Trump administration came in and repudiated the deal and the European mm. signatories to it have been doing their very best to keep yeah. it alive. Do you think it can be sort of kept alive even on life support until perhaps there's a change in the White House? Or is that deal really dead now? I think it, it probably is, though, and, and you're absolutely right that since uh, Americans' withdrawal from that in 2018, the, the, the Europeans are desperately trying to keep this show on the road. They um, devised a very complex financial instrument to try and allow Iran to keep selling oil and keep, keep doing business. Um, but look, over the weekend, Iran, as expected, announced not that it's completely abandoning the deal, but again, it was walking away from one of its final um commitments under the deal. So again, it's suggesting that it's all but but gone. Um, Javad Sarif, the Iranian foreign minister, was a key figure in all this. Uh, he, you know, was negotiating very closely with the Europeans and um, he's been here at the UN. He's a, a very kind of, he was seen as a, I mean, this is kind of the tragedy of, of it all, that one of the reasons the Iran nuclear deal was signed in 2015 was that there was an emergence of a more moderate uh, part of the Iranian structure, of, of the state structure. And Zarif, the, the foreign minister, epitomized that. And, you know, so from the Iranians' point of view now, the idea that they trusted America, they signed this deal, and then ultimately America pulled out, that was always going to be difficult for the Iranian public. And the the, the Iranians who were always skeptical of the deal had to swallow because America did back out of it ultimately. And they kind of gave up this political capital, signed the deal, and ultimately America walked away. So now I think, and, and only in September here, um, when Donald Trump was at the UN, there was talk of uh, Zarif meeting Trump or Rouhani, the president, at, at uh, the UN. Now, it didn't happen, um, but even Trump was saying he was open to it. But now what's happened, one of the many uh, ramifications of this strike is that the idea of US-Iranian diplomacy seems to be dead in the water. Um, it'll be interesting to watch the European response, particularly France. France opposed, obviously, the Iraq war in particular, and it gave a very lukewarm response to the strikes last week. Um, and Britain, Germany, France being united on this, on, on the desperately trying to keep the Iran deal going. Um, but I think France in particular, and Macron, he invited Zarif to the, uh, for a meeting on the fringes of the G7 in Biarritz uh, last July, which annoyed America. 
but again, it shows that Macron himself has been very involved with this. So I think they're an important figure to watch, particularly as they're on the Security Council along with Britain. Um, but Dominic Raab, the British Foreign Secretary, is in Washington this week. That had already been planned. Um, but yeah, it, it's not going to do anything for uh, US-EU relations, that's for sure, because the Iran deal was one thing that really divided uh, the EU from the US. And this, I think, will even push that further. Okay, well, no doubt we'll be returning to all of those topics in the weeks ahead. Suzanne, thank you. That's all for this week. For more on this and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.